Ephesians chapter 4. The book of Ephesians chapter 4. We're getting on to a new chapter in the book of Ephesians this morning. Yay! Careful. Maybe something we missed, we may need to go back. No. Uh, it's all for a purpose. Ephesians chapter 4. Now, we're only going to treat the first verse this morning. Um, but as we do, let's read on down through, oh, I don't know, verse 6, please. Verses 1 through 6, chapter 4. This is the word of the Lord. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, uh, my prayer is that you would fill your people. Father, use your Holy Spirit to speak above my words, to go into the hearts. You know each individual heart. You know what's tugging on it this morning. You know their hopes. You know their fears. Father, pray that you would speak to each heart here this morning with the truth from your scripture. Feed us, Father. Feed us from the glorious truth that is your word and your revelation to us. Why is it so glorious? Why is it so precious to us? Because it reveals more of who you are. It reveals more of your character, your love, your mercy, what you've done in your son Jesus. And it gives us hope. It gives us assurance. It gives us encouragement to live the life that you've called us to live here. Each life being different this morning, speak to those hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we're just going to look at this first verse. And Paul gives this like monumental conjunction. And this is, um, this is the beauty of language study. I, I, um, it gives you insight to what the Holy Spirit has done from a perspective that I think uh, it helps me a lot. It's from a, a practical or a logical perspective because the Greek is such a logical language that there's only one way you can put it together. And then if only one way to put it together, one way to interpret it. Now, it is very precise in that feature. And because of that, my brain is kind of like drawn to that logic or that that mechanism, that mechanical aspect of the language. And we see one of those, a good point to, to make a good illustration out of that is this therefore, I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Those are just fantastic words. And that, that therefore is indeed monumental. Uh, it's at the beginning of chapter four, and we must uh, at some level take heed. And I think Part of uh, the way we study the Bible is that that will be impactful over weeks and months ahead as we see chapters 4, 5, and 6. 
the therefore will continue to build in our hearts and connect what came before to what's coming ahead. Uh, we, so we have to take heed to the weight and gravity of this injunction. It connects all that has been previously stated by Paul in the first three chapters as the reason for what is about to be required ethically of the Christian. Our walk, our life is all couched, is all set in the foundation of the three chapters of what Paul has just given us that God has done for us. So it marks out the results of Paul's reasoning process, the Spirit's reasoning through Paul from God regarding all that God has done for us in accord to what was written in the chapters 1 through 3. It is the grand conclusion of Paul's reasoning and his reckoning regarding the grand theology he's just gave, given us in the first three chapters. If we take just a moment, we did this in Sunday school lesson, just turn back to chapter 1 beginning at verse 3. And we could go back and talk about these things for hours, I think, because we always need this close to our heart. But this is why a study like this is so important. All these things build, and it builds to a point where Paul uses it as the logical requirements of our ethical life or our living in this place. So he, he builds it on this, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, he has blessed us in Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What more do we need? He chose us before the foundations of the world in Jesus. You've got to get all the way down to verse 13 in this passage to find out in time when that came to each one of us. But as a forethought, as a plan of God, sin never surprises God. This is his plan before the foundation of the world to reconcile man back to God. This is the grand and fantastic, as Calvin would say, plan of redemption that all of creation was set forth so that God could carry this drama out on. All of creation points to a God who is saving a creation that's lost in sin. You being that creation. All of it. This is God's only plan and thought and foresight. Go down to verses 9 and 10. It undergirds that. Do you see it there? He's making known to us the mystery of his will. Everybody goes, I wonder what God wants for my life. Well, read these verses. He wants you to be saved and be reconciled to him. And this is all according to his purpose. In other words, this is all his purpose is to redeem his creation back to himself. Because he set this forth in Jesus Christ. There, verse 10 tells you plainly. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in the heaven and things in earth, everything else goes away. So this is the massive foundation for the ask that Paul's about to give. And you know, when my son, I won't tell you which one, I'll just let you guess. My, when my son wants to do something, um, this is pretty good, really. Um, he comes to me to ask for that thing that he's not sure I'm going to agree to. Uh, and he kind of wants to get on my good side. He always comes to me or texts me and says, well, Dad, I've really spent some time thinking about this, and I believe that you're the man to talk to about these things. <laughs> and one of my other sons, and I won't tell you who that is, he would always bring it like this. He'd bring it, he'd come up to me, he says, well, you know, he said, well, wait a minute, before I ask, he said, have you lost some weight? You're looking good. And then go on with the ask, with the tough question. He, they'd always couch it in these things. 
Or maybe it's your boss, you know, he comes to you and he says, you know, I've hired you specifically for this. You've had the training. We've supplied you with the, all the resources you need. In other words, you're ready to do this merger or acquisition or whatever it is. They always couch it in something. It always is built on a foundation. And this is just fundamentally the way that we reason because human beings are rational. So if, if A is right, thus we have B, and, and A becomes the basis for B to happen. And that is the massive connection that Paul is making here in Ephesians. And we sell ourselves short if we just jump ahead to the ethical do's in this book without providing ourselves the firm foundation of why we're to act the way we're to act. Because it's built in the sovereignty and the love and the mercy and the goodness. Listen, God is holy. That means he's set apart and he's righteous. His righteousness declares that everything he does is right, therefore it must be good. And if it's right and good, he chose to save you and bring you to this church here today and to set and to hear these words so that you could know him more fully and that you would live a certain way. And it's out of obedience you want to live that way. And that's what theology does. The better you understand the first three chapters, the more you are likely to live as the last three chapters are going to call you to live. And you can see the truth in what the Holy Spirit has done in the book of Ephesians. And this, this is going to kind of blow your mind, I think. It does mine. I hope that it does yours. I hope you're such a Bible nerd like me. Why? Because you're people of truth, like I'm a person of truth. You love your Bible. You love that God's Word is enlivened in you by the work and power of His Holy Spirit. And I'm, you know, I'm not trying to be like my son when I say this. I'm not couching it and trying to placate you momentarily this morning so that you will see this but you'll love it because you're saved people because you love to know these truths so when you look at what the spirit has done and just quick word about that because it's by the spirit remember we talked about this for the last three or four weeks it's by the spirit that all these truths make sense to us and that's exactly what paul was leaving us with as he closed the third chapter that we would be empowered by that spirit that we'd be be strengthened in our inner man in our study, in our devotions, that we read the precious words of life from the scriptures and where the Holy Spirit moves on us and impresses upon us the love and the power and the sovereignty and the goodness of God. Oh, beloved, it is the work of the Holy Spirit to engender in us a depth of truth that other people who do not love God do not have access to. They're blinded by their sins and they have no Holy Spirit to give them that truth. Listen, this is the balance of the book of Ephesians, and it's glorious, and it speaks to the conjunction, I, therefore, that Paul starts the fourth chapter with in the second half of this book. So it is this that you'll love. It's in the book of Ephesians. There's exactly 41, 41 imperative verbs. So I tested my wife last night. I said, do you know what an imperative verb is? She goes, well, I think I do. So I just to backfill this a little bit, it, it means something that you, it's an imperative. You have to do it. You, you are required to do it. That's what an imperative verb is. And, and those 41 imperative verbs are there in the book of Ephesians. An imperative verb in the form in the Greek of the New Testament means that the action of the verb is imperative for the believer to do or to follow. That's why we call it the imperative form. Now we use that in all grammar. But in Scripture, it's a command from God. My wife may say to one of the children in the imperative form, don't touch the stove. 
but it doesn't carry the authority that God says when he uses an imperative through the work of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. For the kid to touch the stove is just consequences of his sin. But for us to not follow an imperative verb has eternal implications because of our sin. Do you see that? 41 imperatives in the book of Ephesians, but only one of them, beloved, is found in the first three chapters. That's where we find the indicatives of the book of Ephesians. The indicatives indicate what God has done. The imperatives, what God calls us to do. So you see the glorious work of the Holy Spirit there. It's in the, third, uh, the second three chapters that he gives 40 imperatives. And they're, most of them are in the present active. That means they are continually being called to follow and to do. They're the same as commands. So you can just expand the law and expand the Ten Commandments and, and see that every imperative that God gives us because it's holy writ, it's scripture, it becomes a command for the, for the believer. And you can begin to see that. So, those, so 40 of those imperatives are found in our study as we make the ascent through the last three chapters of Ephesians. And it's going to be each one of them that we hang our hat on. And the first thing you say is, you know, how can I follow that many commands? I can't even remember the Ten Commandments. How can I remember these 40 imperatives? And um, the thing of it is, is that the Lord makes you able to follow those 40 imperatives. And you'll see that as we work through this. Here's the proposition I want to give to you this morning. The walk of worthiness that the scripture points out here. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That worthiness is found in those 40 imperatives. And the walk of worthiness is worth being a prisoner for. It's worth everything. The walk of worthiness that he's calling us to is, as Paul says here, it's worth being a prisoner for. It is worth everything because that's what he couches this father in. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. He could have just said, I. He'd already said prisoner of the Lord over in chapter 3. He could have just said, I, therefore, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. But he doesn't. He couches it in his Roman imprisonment. And he was in prison for preaching the gospel. And this was not the first imprisonment for Paul. This was not the first struggle that he'd been through. Not the first time that he had prayed a great price for the work of the gospel on behalf of Jesus Christ. But what he's saying is it's worth it. Even if you have to be imprisoned, it is worth it for you to follow these imperatives. But his use of it here is evidence that of what he believed to be true about the value of possessing Jesus Christ. It was worth it. He is saying that it was worth being imprisoned to be in possession of the presence of Jesus Christ in his life. He was saying that that imprisonment and all the suffering was of far less consequence than the knowing and having possession of Christ. What lies just beyond, therefore, is worth it. That's what he's saying. Everything that, that is from the therefore forward in the final three chapters of the book of Ephesians is all worth it. Doesn't mean it's easy doesn't mean it's simple but it's all worth it and i want you to know that value and cost are directly proportionate right you get what you pay for right we all know this that value and cost are directly proportionate if you walk like this paul's saying it may cost you like this that's what paul is saying Value and cost are directly proportionate. Those things that are most worth it in life require something of us 
That is not easy, but it's always worth the effort. And don't underestimate this truth intellectually. That is, this is where many people fall short of understanding the bigger picture of Christianity. Life can go by really fast. It can come at you really fast. You get busy when you're younger, right? You get busy going to college. You get busy meeting that girl. You get busy in your marriage. You get busy having children. Pretty soon you've got a mortgage and a car payment and all those things, and you become a reactionary human being. You're busy. And beloved, it all distorts what is of value in your life at some level. And this love and this world loves to prefer what true value is. Abortion is the greatest example of that. The clinic workers value the right of the mother to choose the death of her baby over the unbelievable consequences that is the wrath of God that is poured out for those who murder children. And that's what I'm talking about. You can get so busy that you don't care about those things. You can get so busy that when you stop and think about them, of course you care about them because you love people. But how much do you care about them if you're so busy in your own life that you don't have time for that or you don't have time to think about it or you don't have time to think about the consequences of that? You become what is reactionary. I don't want anybody in here to be reactionary. I want you guys to be proactive, right, self-aware. You can see the world and understand the world through a biblical lens. See the world how God sees the world so you can live in the world like God wants you to live in the world. Because that's what Paul is getting ready to say here. These imperatives is the way that God wants you to live in the world. And if you get busy dealing with the things of the world, you're not going to be able to learn how to live in the world that pleases God. Because there, beloved, is where you find your blessings. There's where you find your hope. There's where it becomes worth it to you that you will say, yeah, even if I have to go to prison, the things of God are more valuable than the things of this world. Don't become reactionary. Stay on this side of it with me. And that is where you preach the gospel. You want them to begin to understand that reason. I've always said this, if people would just stop intellectually and think about what the wrath of God is going to be against all sin and, and his judgment coming someday. Hebrews 10 says we have a certain fearful expectation of a coming judgment, those who don't know God. And that's certainly true. But I want them to understand that from an intellectual perspective so it sinks to a spiritual perspective. Paul says it's worth it, beloved, and he's just not kidding you. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, it's worth it if that's what it takes for you to walk in a worthy manner compared to what you've been called to do. Paul says it's worth it, the value of of the eternal, and we should be willing to forgo all to possess Christ. Turn with me, if you will. I want to illustrate this from the Lord's parables in the book of Matthew, chapter 13. The book of Matthew, chapter 13. We're going to look at uh, beginning in verse 44, Matthew 13, 44. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. If you have it there, you know, when I, when I was younger and I read these parables, I thought this was all just relative. But now that I'm older and more mature in my Christianity, I, I've come to identify with these much more. I don't know. It's the environmental buildup that this world has on you. I, I want to love everyone I see, and God's made me like that. And I could just care less anymore about my life, to be truly honest with you. 
I think, I think at some level, uh, as you mature, you become to become more like Paul. You begin to see through the eyes of Paul, through the eyes of the Spirit, because you solely and wholly trust God for your very next breath, for your very next meal, for the money that pays the next bill. You trust him for all those things. And these parables become more real to me every time I read them in my walk. Listen to the words. He says, the kingdom of heaven. What is that? Well, we don't have time to fully pursue that this morning. But he's speaking in generalities like he is over in Ephesians 4.1. He's saying, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Well, the part of our calling is salvation. Part of it is the kingdom of heaven. Part of it is everything that Christ has won on our behalf, all the spiritual blessings that he talks about in chapter 1. I don't know how many those are, but they're way more than I can understand and count. Right? So he reads it. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Man, that must be like a great treasure, right? So when a man found that thing, he quickly covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The only thing he has in this world is that little field and all the joy that the kingdom of heaven can bring that person in this life. Do you see that? Now, this next one is just like it. It starts in the next verse. This is an unexpected surprise find there in verse 44, but this isn't expected. This is somebody making the intellectual ascent, and they've heard the gospel, and they begin to understand these things, right? Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Like a man who knew there was something greater. I know there's something greater. There's something that defines everything. There's something that outshines the glory of the greatest things this thing, this earth has to offer. There's something better. There's something grander. There's a promise that's better, bigger, beyond all of it that dwarfs everything that we can see here. There's something out there, and I'm searching. And when he found it, that pearl of great value went and sold everything that he had, everything, so that he could possess that pearl. Beloved, are you ready to sell everything you have to possess Christ? That's the juxtaposition that Paul's facing us with this morning. Therefore, knowing what God has done, are you ready to live like this? And here's where the imperatives kick in. It's gain. And this is, I guess, what I've come to understand better over the years. So many people miss this truth. When they read these passages, they remiss that the gain that they're going to receive far outweighs whatever they might lose in this place. Or they read this gain as some kind of statement about future glory, something that's coming in the future, and they're willing to trade something in the future that's better for glory now. And it's, that's, of course, true. We are gaining heaven, and it will be a great glory in the future, but not from the perspective of Paul's foundation on this imprisonment. That just blows Paul's statement away. You see what it says? I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you. Don't lose your place in Matthew. (laughs) He's saying even the imprisonment is better. Even if I have to suffer in this place, not just live a normal life, but even if I have to suffer, it's still worth what I gain in Christ right now. It's worth the encouragement. It's worth the living. It's worth the hope. It's worth the promise. So this is where these imperatives kick in. It's about gain. Following Christ is worth it, not just for the future glory that is to come, but the present glory. He has given us his very great and real and precious promises that we may live this life with. 
John 10.10 says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you may have life and life more abundantly. Not someday, but the day that you willingly give up everything you have to gain what Jesus has to give. Right? That's when you receive life and life more abundantly. This is not a reactionary life of this world. This is the solid foundation of the possession of Christ. This is what Paul uh, uh, builds his foundation on. Everything that God has said and done in chapters 1 through 3 becomes the launching point to live like chapters 4 through 6. Life lived in the power of the Spirit is what he's going to call it, as we saw it in chapter 3. Life that has the keys to heaven so that we can tell others about this life. We can tell others about this hope. They see that in us. They see that no matter how dark and hard their hearts are. I guarantee you they see that, and they have to reckon with it. That is exactly what Paul is saying. He said the possession of Christ being worth his flesh being in temporary change. It's worth it. Listen, his flesh may have been chained in that prison, but his soul was as free as it could be. Do you understand that? Don't be reactionary. And it's this, in this vein, he urges, urges us to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. To walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. He says this over and over. He says, I urge you then, in 1 Corinthians 4.16, be imitators of me. Be imitators of me as I am of in Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Paul would consistently say that the walk is worth the calling. Walk worth the calling. We'll spend some more time here uh, in the coming weeks because it's from the springboard of this calling and our salvation that we need to understand exactly what Paul's going to call us to. But what we see now opposite of those imperatives is the fact that this is a general call. This is a generalization. He doesn't really say what that manner is. He's going to go on and tell us through these 40 imperatives. But this is a generalization in this passage in 4.1. And Paul lays down several imperatives to come of what that walk, our Christian walk, looks like. And that is the heart of the study that begins here in verse 1 of chapter 4 and goes through verse 20 of chapter 6. It's about that walk, about that life, about how we live as Christians. But here the generalization, as it's tied to the worthy of your calling phrase, that is broad. Our ethics, our living, must match our calling. Well, what is that, right? That's what we're going to suss out. Paul loves this word walk. That's one of the things we have to look at. Uh, because he uses that word 33 times in all of his letters, eight times here in the book of Ephesians. And it directly means our walk of life, how we live our life here. It speaks of our Christian walk and our Christian life, the Christian life as we walk in this world, if you want to. And to fill that in, let's look at how that's changed and how he's used it to this point. Go to chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians and verses 1 through 3. We're going to see how Paul uses that word here to kind of illustrate what he's talking about. And he's also going to illustrate in that word how our lives have changed as believers. Two, chapter 2, verse 1. Do you see it? And you are dead in your trespasses and sins. See it there in verse 2? In which you once walked. That's, what you, that's how you used to walk, dead in your trespasses and sins. You were blinded by the God of this world. 
um, following the prince of the power of the air, he says, the spirit that is now at work in all the sons of disobedience, verse 3, among whom we all once lived. There's that life, living, walking in the passion um, of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. He goes on in verse 10, though, and this walk begins to change. Because God prepared, as we see in chapter 1, before the foundations of the world, that we were to do different things. So we see in verse 10, he illustrates it just a bit further. For we are his workmanship. That means God's workmanship. Not only his workmanship and creation, and he created us. Psalms 139 says specifically that he knit us together in our mother's wombs, right? That beautiful illustration of, of the baby being born and the substance uh, was seen by God before there were any days of it ever lived, that God had had thought good thoughts about you in the womb of your mother and knit you together. And that it was his workmanship as a master craftsman, but it didn't end the day you were born because his workmanship goes much further than that. And that's how we get the gospel because before the foundation of the world, he began this workmanship in you and he brought it to pass in time. About 2000 years ago, he put his son on the cross to pay the penalty of your sins so that you could be saved and understand the gospel whenever the Holy Spirit worked in your heart. He's, he's like master craftsman working those things out throughout all your life. He is so faithful to do all those things to you. Paul is basing it all on that, that you would live and act in a way that's worthy of this calling that what God's doing. And it's in these little bits and pieces we see. See it there in verse 10? For we are his workmanship. We were created in Christ Jesus, that is, that we were saved in Christ Jesus, that Christ came and did in our lives. What were we created for? For good works, which God prepared before that, that we should what? Walk in them. So more specifics, right? We were walking in darkness. God saved us. And now we're to walk in the good works that God created before that. For us to do. Go on to chapter 4, verse 17. He uses the walk there in 4 1. I, I urge you, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, to walk in a manner worthy. But then he says, he gives us the negative in, in verse 17 of chapter 4. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. In other words, your walk's been changed. Don't walk back to that. That would be part of your calling. That would not be part of your calling to begin to walk in that manner. We are to walk in love. Go to chapter 5, verse 2. 5, 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Go to 5, 8. He continues to go a little bit further, and these are all those present active imperatives that we're going to spend more time on when we get there. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. Walk as children of light. And then 5.15, just to give you one more of these. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So you see these imperatives and these individual commands and by the way, they are all present active imperatives, like I said. 
This is that they are continually present, continually being held before us, that we're continually to walk and to live like this, the positive ones are. And then you have the guardrails that I was talking about from 4.1. It's the generalization of the command to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And that is referring to the calling of salvation and to walk worthy of that. And it kind of covers like a blanket this Christian life that we have. And I used to, I'll again go back to one of my sons, we would tell him that he couldn't hang out with certain people on Friday night. People that his mother and I didn't want him to hang out. You know the, you know the kind, right? Bobby, you know the kind. You don't, you don't go hanging out with Bill and Jack because they're going to be trouble. And it's Friday night. We don't want you to go hanging out. Well, the same son would come to the next weekend, and he'd go hang out with Billy and Jack, and he'd look at us and say, well, you didn't tell me not to do it this weekend. That's how this general guardrail works that Paul is giving us here. He gives us multiple, several specific commands, but he also, Hiam's laughing at that because he's staying at my house now, and I give him the same instructions. He gives us this general command that kind of keeps us corralled in. Listen, you're to live worthy of the calling with which you've been called. What is that? I think it's infinite, right? We can begin to think about that in many different ways, and we're going to work on that. Walk in a manner worthy of my salvation. How can I do that, right? How can I do that? How can I ever earn that status? How can I ever please God in that way? I think when we begin to think about it from that perspective, because the Bible doesn't say, don't smoke cigarettes, right? The Bible doesn't say, this is my favorite one, and everybody goes, ooh, when I say it. The Bible nowhere says not to speed. And none of you speed, right? <laughs> I, I've had that question, I don't know how many times. It came up in, in, in seminary one day. Is it a sin to speed? Well, does it fit living in the manner worthy to which you've been called? See how that question begins to answer many questions that we might have as a Christian? So he's got this generalized blanket, but he's also got these 40 specifics. Walk in a manner worthy of my salvation. And I think when I thought about this this week, as I began to work on the previous weeks, coming weeks, I think about this and I go, oh my gosh, how can I do that? That becomes a, a heavy tote to carry. How can I ever earn that status? I mean, I'm, I'm doomed if I've got to do this well. If I've got to remember all 40 of these imperatives and if I've got to think about everything to this level, if I've got to walk perfectly, like, I mean, my salvation is perfect, right? Jesus was perfect. And I'm called to be like Jesus. And boy, am I doomed to failure if this is my measure by which God measures me. And so you just need to stop right there because that is something filthy called legalism. When you think like that, you make a mockery of Christ because he earned it on your behalf, beloved. You get this walk as a gift of grace, not a burden to bear. Salvation is a joy to behold that you willingly give all that you have to gain. It is the gain of the giving. And Paul says it doesn't matter how great your life is or how big the pearl is. This pearl is greater, and it's worth that. I mean, we start out as baby Christians, and, and uh, we start on the small end of this. And what do babies do when they learn how to walk? Yeah, they fall flat on their face a lot, don't they? Do you ever teach a kid how to walk? I mean, it's kind of like programmed into them, and they, little critters want to get into everything. 
And, you, and it's illegal to tie their legs together. <laughs> but they, they fall down a lot, don't they? They stumble, they fall, we'll do that, we'll stumble, we'll fall. But that doesn't mean that we won't walk someday. And that doesn't mean that we won't learn to walk with efficiency and then to run and then to run and be free and to have the freedom that that walk brings. You know, I was talking with a man uh, a couple weeks ago about uh, being saved and he said, uh, you know, I've cussed all my life and now I just want to stop. I don't know why. I can't stop yet, but I want to stop. I've never wanted to stop. It just came out. It was just normal. And now I want to stop. Why do I want to stop? Because you want to walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. It's automatic. Brother, I told him, brother, I said, we've all gone through it because we all cussed, right? No, I know there's some of you saints that haven't. But we've all felt the like feelings. We start out as baby Christians. And we know our weaknesses and our failures seem immense. And it seems like, well, why do I want to quit doing those things? Why do I even care about quitting? Because there's been a great change in you, beloved. You want to walk worthy because Christ has given you a new heart. And you want to quit cussing and you want to quit doing things that are wrong because you, you still live in the old flesh. But there is a work that is unmistakable that's taking place within your soul. And that is that you're having victory over sin. And that is victory over fear. And that is victory over this world. And that is that you want more of Christ. You want to possess more of Christ than you want this life. And this is your possession. And this is why it's worth it. Because, beloved, this is life. And this is the victory that Christ has won on your behalf. Enjoy your walk. Enjoy your life. And add to it an understanding of reality because you now you know truth. And then you add to it the ability to love others. And you're like going out of your mind. What has Christ done within me? That I can know truth. That I can see their demise. And I want to love them through that. That I can tell them about their God. That I even have the ability to love other people and to care for them. And their eternal destination is a work of God. He's doing that in you. And where did all that come from? Because I never cared before. I mean, I cared, but I really didn't care. And now I understand life and death and heaven and hell. And, and that's, I don't, I, now I care. Why do I care? I didn't used to care. And I'll just tell you this. What makes your walk, beloved, is that you working in and of your obedience to Christ. But it's the power. It's the certain power that dunamis, remember from a couple weeks ago, that Paul wanted you to know and have and love and understand. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. Look up there. We just spent those weeks in chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. The riches of his glory that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being so that you can possess Christ, so that you can own Christ, and it is so worth it so that you can be rooted and grounded in love and faith, so that you can begin to call out with all the saints and do all the things that God's called you to do, and you can begin to experience the fullness of God, the breadth, the width, the height, the depth, knowledge that surpasses understanding. All the fullness of God is what he's talking about, beloved. I want you to walk. Let go of the worldly and grab on to the godly. Grab on to what God has promised us, and that's when you begin to soar, beloved, even if you are in prison for your faith. You can't stop to walk. Christ is going to put you on a path 
that makes you soar, whether you're in prison or whether you're on a street corner preaching the gospel. We are filled and we experience a love that surpasses knowledge and understanding and the heights and depths and the breadths of width of God, the fullness of God. And this is what it means to walk worthily, to allow that to take place into your life, to be understanding that you're going to make mistakes. Beloved, this walk is not your achievement. It's for God's glory. It is your obedience to do what God is calling you to do, absolutely. But it's God's work in you, so walk in a manner worthy. This is the gospel, beloved, that Jesus died so that you could have this walk in your life, that you could experience this joy, this freedom. Jesus did the hard things so that we can do hard things. He died on the cross so that we could die to ourselves and live a life that he's called us to live. This is where great value lies. This is where you will find that it is worth it. This is where you find out that selling out the world to gain Christ is life, love, security, and peace. It is hope, beloved. It is power. And it is freedom. To walk in a manner worthy. Are you ready to go through these last three chapters? They're going to challenge us to the core of who we are as we see some of the truths that Paul has for us. But I guarantee you this, and I make this promise today, that just as Paul saw that doing these things was worth his imprisonment, you too will see this pearl of great price in your life. Are you ready? All right. We're going to do it. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the grace you give us to live this life. Oh, Father, we don't do so well with it. Yeah, we fall, we stumble, we make mistakes. But we're living in a way that can only be explained by what you've done in us. And it'll only be explained by the power of your spirit residing in our inner mans. And as we possess you, we possess the pearl of great price. And that grows within us, Father. We do fall, but we learn to walk. And as we learn to walk, we become proficient at it. And as we become proficient at it, we begin to run. And we begin to express the freedom that you've given us to walk in this life, to live in those mistakes, to live in the joy of the goodness that you brought through your son Jesus, to live knowing we're forgiven and that the cannot condemnation of sin does not hang over our heads. That's a life worthy. Let us live life worthy of the calling to which we've been called, Father. Let us grab it with all of our let us pursue it, pursue everything that's true, good, and beautiful in this place so others can see the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, may we be that people. May you do that work in us. As we go through the last section of Ephesians and we learn what these imperatives mean to our lives, the great unity that we'll talk about that's to come, not only the unity we have with you, Father, but with one another, the truth, and how that will bring a fullness into our lives that we won't be tossed to and fro and carried about by all these things that we hear, but we'll be able to speak the truth in love and the body will grow. Lord, to love our wives like Christ loved the church. Lord, to respect our husbands. Lord, to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. To serve our 
earthly masters in our jobs the way you've called us to. And Father, to understand life is a spiritual battle and to put on the full armor and to go forward for your glory. Teach us these things as we go forward, Father. Impress them in our hearts that this is a manner worth living. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.